Welcome to the third episode of the Paranormal Rundown. In case you missed episode two, be sure to go back and check it out. Our guest was Father Michael Birdsong, a priest and exorcist for the Charismatic Episcopal Church. We had a lot of fun talking about a whole range of topics, from curses to demons to Jason the Horse. For this episode, our guest is paranormal author Anna Maria Manalo. JJ will give her a detailed introduction in just a little bit. But before we get started, we do want to make you aware that this episode has several mentions of suicide. While our show is often lighthearted and humorous, there can also be dark and emotional trauma related to paranormal events. We don't shy away from such things, but in this case we felt we should give you a heads up. Beyond that, we hear stories of a mothman-like creature, swarming cockroaches, haunted objects, aliens, and even deer walking on two legs. So sit back, get comfortable, and enjoy the ride. May I please have your full and undivided attention? It is time for the Paranormal Rundown. Hello, this is Cedric Dankworth-Smythe. I am the unexpectedly psychic butler who works with these fine gentlemen. You found your way to the Paranormal Rundown. That was extremely good of you. So, let's get ready to listen to JJ, Vicar Manson, and Dave Griffith as they discuss over 1,300 exciting and titillating paranormal topics. They'll have a guest tonight, but she's in the dungeon right now, so she doesn't get away. Hello all, welcome back to episode three of the Paranormal Rundown, hosted by me, JJ, uh, David, the Paranormal Research Extraordinaire, and Victor, the host of the Trailer Trash Terrors podcast. Joining us today is a phenomenal author that you may have heard of who goes by the name of Anna Maria Manello. I have interviewed her on Southern Demonology before, had a phenomenal time, and we have remained friends ever since. And knowing that the Paranormal Rundown, which has a list of 1,300 plus paranormal topics plus random other facts and vocabulary that we like to discuss, uh, we have decided to have a guest on every episode. Last episode, if you have not heard that one, was with Father Michael Birdsong, and today we have Anna Maria Manello. She is the uh, author of such works as Portal, The Way Through the Woods, Haunted Heirlooms, um, and now actually has a brand new book that is coming up uh, in just a few days' time, and we will give her plenty of uh, uh, opportunities to be able to speak about that coming forward. But for now... Welcome to the Paranormal Rundown. You did a good job with that, JJ. I don't know about that, but I tried. I didn't stumble <laughs> too badly. So. <laughs> so this is this is Vicar Manson, and I'm the uh, the king of the random number generator. 
And it's my job to come up with topics for us to pick apart and to discuss. So I'm going to go ahead and invoke the, the random number generator. One, two, three. And let's let it go. Okay. <clears throat> so, Anna-Marie, since you are the guest of honor. Oh, thank you. We have the following uh, six topics. <clears throat> and you can choose from those. Or if you don't like them, we can just find another one. The uh, first topic is King Arthur and Arthurian legends. The second is Sister Maria and her letter dictated by the devil. Yep. Uh, 80, the next one is a more of a biblical concept of as above, so below. The fourth one is the wandering Jew, not as an anti-Semitic slur, but using immortality as a punishment. Uh, number five is haunted houses. And number six is the legendary bestiary. Mm. Do I get to pick? Yeah, that's your that's your job. You're the uh, you're the navigator. I'm the picker. Okay, uh, haunted houses for ten points. Haunted houses for ten points. Well, why don't you start if you have any experience? <laughs> Actually, uh, I have plenty, plenty, and. Uh, it, I hope you have the time. We do. I was actually born about 10,000 miles away in the Philippines. Hmm. And when I lived there, the very first experience I had, which is even prior to, I would say, you know, children usually form memories, I would say, around maybe age two, two and a half to consciously recall. Right. And, and that's debatable, of course. I don't know Min what- Minimal memories, I would say. For... Yeah, yeah. So the minimal memory that I have of that particular time period was living with my parents in a townhouse. This townhouse was in a rather remote little hamlet, not even a town. I would say it was only maybe two to three streets uh, in size. Uh, behind it was what you would call, uh, it's not even a river, it's really basically a creek with mature trees that line the periphery on both sides of the bank. And that is where I had my very first intense experience with the paranormal. Uh, it took the form of something that was called at the time, demonic. But what remained to me to this day, I could best describe as a Mothman. Do you guys remember the movie with Richard Gere? Well, plus all the oh, yes. John Keel works and Point Pleasant and the, was it Silver Bridge? All of that? Yes. So my father was a writer pretty much like I was, but he centered his writing on poetry. Mm -hmm. um, he worked from home. He was probably one of the very first people who worked from home, except he didn't have a laptop. He had a Smith Corona. <laughs> uh, and he would just type for hours in his study, which was sandwiched between their bedroom and my nursery, which was on the right-hand side of the room. Mm -hmm. And every dusk for several months... He would see a creature 
that looked very much like Mothman. How big was and, this creature? Uh, his description to my mother, and you got to remember, I was technically just an infant in a crib at the time. His description was that it spanned the entire one wall because the the townhouse was such that it had windows from one end of the room to the other. Mm-hmm. And this is for reasons of getting a breeze because it's a tropical country. Mm-hmm. And then the window would stretch all the way to the ceiling. So you're pretty much looking at the entire one side of mm, the okay. house mm-hmm. on the second floor. And this thing, the the wings were wings of a bat. It had the face of a goat mm-hmm. with yellow eyes and the goatee, you know, and the classic horns on its head. And it towered so much so that it would go all the way up to the top of the ceiling. Oh, man. And the wings would go six feet right across. And it would lean over the window. The window, the only thing that prevented it from coming in, if it was three-dimensional, was the bars on the window and the screens. The, the Philippines have lots of mm, paranormal critters. I mean, the, the word that's coming into my mind is aswang, mm-hmm. which is also some kind of large flying beast. Yes. Did your did your dad make speculation as to what this thing was? Well, he speculated quite a bit. The tough part about this is that he, no one else saw the creature but him. Ah, okay. So for the longest time, and, and this is a very strictly Roman Catholic country where there was mm-hmm. a lot of poo-pooing with, you know, seeing things that weren't there. People were very superstitious, but at the same time, very reluctant to open up about what they witness and what they see. Uh, And in this particular case, he would tell my mother, he would tell his parents when they visited. And they said, you know, how come no one's ever seen it? Do your neighbors ever tell you that they've seen it? And we had neighbors on either side and no one has seen it but him. But eventually, one day, my mother walked up to the second floor because we had a live-in maid, Mm -hmm. and she screamed. She screamed at the top of her lungs. She fled down the steps. My mother then said, what is going on? She runs upstairs thinking something had happened to me. Uh, And then the maid said, no, 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 it's the study. So my mother proceeded to the study and opened the door, and there it was. She finally got to see it. She reaches for the cross on the other side of the room. She grabs it and she actually charges towards the figure while my father was sitting, looking down at his typewriter as if he didn't want to make eye contact. And whatever this thing was at the window looked at the cross. And JJ, I think I told you this. The thing folded up like Dracula. It took one of its bat wings and covered its face and began to effervesce. Absolutely. And yeah, I mean, if anything smacks of the demonic, that reaction most certainly does. Is this, um, are these are some of the experiences that you captured in your first book. Is that correct? Yes, I did. Actually, I did write about that at the time I was working at a school. 
and a lot of times what happens is because, you know, we have parents involved and things of that nature, we're kind of restricted in what we can do. So I wrote it under a pseudonym. I made sure no one knew I was writing this type of uh, literature. Now, that the, must the have been man, a severe uh, balancing act. <laughs> yeah, that's a big, big balancing Definitely. act. Yeah. Yeah. So do you have any direct memory of this or is this memory something that has developed because of what your, your parents have told you? Well, uh, some of it was told to me. Some of it is visceral. When I went to see the Mothman prophecies, I literally fled out of the uh, theater. Wow. I hadn't I had thought such, about that. <laughs> I had such a visceral reaction to it. I felt like I was going to vomit. Uh, I felt very nauseous. Mm. Um, I, I just had quite a reaction, a sense of menace. Um, everything, uh, my whole body just turned cold. Wow. I was told I had seen it, David. That's what I was told. I'm not really sure. I feel probably, I feel that you probably have, especially if you've had that, that kind of uh, visceral reaction. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, there's something deep down in your brain that that triggered. So speaking of haunted houses, what occurred after that is that we ended up moving in with my grandparents, and that was a house that was built over the ground of bones of Japanese soldiers that died in World War II. Mm-hmm. That is never a fun thing. Oh, Lord. <laughs> JJ. Anyway, what happened there is that on top of the creature following us, whatever it was, uh, my father died because of it, by the way. Well, um, you can't leave that hanging. No. <laughs> uh, the, the, the creature followed us. It was my mother and I at this point. Uh, we went to live with the grandparents, and then things started happening over there, which had already been happening before we moved in. And then they found out that there were bones that needed to be removed from the backyard. Uh, pieces of uniforms, things of that nature. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, there were all kinds of things that were remnants of the war. And they didn't even know at the time what they had built the house on top of. Wow. Yep. So that's the other haunted house. Can Can I ask you a question about the uh, uh, the Mothman part of it? Yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, I I remember the, the story from, from JJ's podcast, and it was horrible hearing about your father. Um. I'm sorry for that. The the question I have is Mothman, you know, the Point Pleasant and the story around that. I know a little bit about it. In fact, I mm-hmm. picked up a book about it at a yard sale last week. I'm looking forward to learning more. Um, but was a uh, considered a portent of potentially natural or severe disasters right. that happened. Right. Right. And Point Pleasant, it was the the bridge. I forget exactly what happened, but I think the bridge fell in or something and collapsed and people died. Do you know, was there anything like that that happened after that sighting in in that area? Any major? You mean as far as catastrophes? Yeah, like a catastrophe type thing. I am not aware of it. I mean, whatever has happened was more on the state side. I mean, Kennedy was assassinated 
uh, around the period of time that my mm. father committed suicide. Uh, the other thing that happened was we were getting uh, major earthquakes, but that was much later in the year. I, I don't know if you can even put a correlation on the two events, but I really don't recall a clear-cut disaster happening other than what personally happened to us. Yeah, which was disaster enough. But Yes, yes. And I'd like to add that these types of infestations, which is what I know them to be now, tend to be one of those lingering things that do somehow mark an individual. So whatever entity this was, and there was no priest involvement because no one at the time was trained to do any type of intervention other than to bless. That's the extent of it. And as you well know, when you bless a site, it creates an upheaval, the activity tends to increase. Right. They're yeah. angry about about that blessing. Yes. Um, so we had, from what I understand, a priest came to my grandmother's house. Uh, they would not allow my father to be buried in a Roman Catholic burial ground because of what the nature of his death uh, I don't know anything about that, but I was told that when someone commits suicide, they cannot enter a church for a week. Yeah, that that's true. I mean, and that's something that has persisted even over into Protestantism. Uh, my my uh, uncle, he died of brain cancer probably, gosh, 15 years ago. And his best friend, lovely man, I still remember him to this day. He couldn't take it because uh, that, that's how close they were. And he wound up blowing his brains out. And my mom was actually the one to clean up the blood from oh his trailer. Gosh. And yeah, and where we're from, if you commit suicide, there's no funeral. There's no public act of grieving it's just considered shameful and swept under the rug, unfortunately. Well, that's what happened with this one. Uh, and and go ahead. No, I, I somehow I missed this episode, and I mean I listened to everything JJ ever never publishes, but I missed this one. So, what happened to your father in terms of what changed in his mind and his psyche that caused him to commit suicide? He wrote about this creature as it became increasingly in his own psyche. He mm -hmm. slept less and less. Mm -hmm. It became more and more invasive. Um, my understanding is that there were several poems that described this creature. Mm. Some made it to the anthology that was posthumously published some did not because my mother was the editor. And when she read the work, uh, she, she herself could not sleep after having read it. It was so terrifying and beyond conceivable that she just could not wrap her head around 
actually showing this to, to someone who would read it. So she excluded it. But one of the things he did tell her that got passed on to my grandmother and eventually to me was whatever this creature was, was trying to take his soul. That's what he said. And he felt that it was coming through to attack the rest of his family, particularly me. So instead of the creature going into me, he decided he would take it with him, if you know what I mean. Sure. So it was actually an act of love where he he ended his life in order to take it with him. That was a protective act. Yes. Did he succeed? Was the entity still visible, present after his death? It was quiet for a while. Um, my understanding is that it resurged in my grandmother's house because there were other entities that were present, you know, like kind of attracts like. Mm -hmm. There was a little bit of tension between my grandfather and my grandmother. My grandmother was a dentist. My grandfather was a doctor. They had very busy lives, and between them, they had six children, of which my mother was the second to the oldest. Mm -hmm. um, because these types of entities tend to thrive on divisive, divisive uh, people, arguments, mm -hmm. people who might be emotionally in turmoil. It latched itself to the house, and shortly I was told that it started manifesting in the backyard. The backyard itself is the site of where the Japanese bones were found. And there's other sorts of creatures that are there. And it kind of created a menace. We had cats that were decapitated. We had no idea why that was happening. Oh, gosh. Um, there were neighbors that would call and say, you know, there's a man standing and looking in into your back bedroom window. Or they would see someone floating uh, over, over the fence. You know, things were walled in back then. Each house mm -hmm. had their own walls. And they would say, there's something waving at us. <laughs> And it's looking at us, and it doesn't look like it's coming from your window. It's outside your window. So there were a lot of things that they were seeing. And these were all happening at dusk and into the, the dead of night. Wow. Were these the kind of walls that had the broken glass embedded in concrete on the top? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. How do you know that? Travel. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was going to say, are you psychic? <laughs> Vic, Vic is our resident psychic, you see. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm, 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 I'm not psychic, I'm, but I am deeply, deeply visual. And as you're talking, I'm putting together an elaborate landscape in my head. And what I saw was the, you know, the fairly high walls with a lot of broken glass mm -hmm. embed, embedded in concrete. Yes, was there an effort to 
when they were removing these bones to identify them, repatriate them to Japan, uh, what happened there? There was a lot of animosity towards the Japanese, which doesn't happen anymore in this day and age. But back then, there was a lot of animosity because there were a lot of massacres. Uh, My grandmother personally lost a younger brother, Uh uh, you know, from a crossfire. So I think what happened was the government came in and did what they needed to do and exhumed whatever they found. And then it was hush, hush. That was it. Mm. But yeah. what was interesting was um, I shortly after that, when I was in my teens, I emigrated to the U.S. Well, here, mm-hmm. um, and it, in in the company of my mother, she moved to New York City to take on a position. I moved into Connecticut and lived with an aunt. So for about five years, no activity, nothing unusual at all. We're now 10,000 miles away. And then we decide to go back and visit. Mm -hmm. So on the fifth anniversary of our emigration, we decided we would fly back and visit the old country. The grandparents were still there. Cousins, et cetera, were still there. They welcomed us. Uh, And then, of course, we went to my paternal grandfather's house, my father's father. Mm Mm-hmm. And this is where it gets very, very strange. So you want to sit down for this one. I'm sitting. (laughs) We were there primarily to catch up. It was my grandfather. It was my father's favorite brother, who at this point was married and expecting his first child. Mm -hmm. He was the youngest of the brood. Um, So... In the course of the day, as the evening wore on, we were invited to stay for dinner, which we accepted. Uh, I was sitting in a rather long and sizable dining table, from what I recall. And to one side of me was Yola, who was my uncle's wife. And I think she was probably about five or six months in the family way at that point, she brought out a bunch of albums. We back in the day, you know, you just don't save it on your cell phone. They're actually physical pictures. Mm-hmm. So she brought them all out just for nostalgia to show the whole family when they were young, including my father, of course, it invariably came back to my father, who was the focal point and the, you know, the center of where everybody was, you know, looking at where he grew up, that was still the same house he grew up in. His bedroom was still there. We were looking at pictures and a piece of paper fell out. And this is probably now around eight o'clock at night because people eat late um, back in the Philippines, just like they do in Europe. She picked it up from the floor. My mother was sitting on the one side of her Uh, My grandfather was sitting opposite of them. And as I was looking on, she unfolded the paper. It was a very old paper. And she put it right in front of me. And it was my father's death certificate. Now, just to give you a history, I never knew what my father passed away from. I've always told my friends in elementary school oh, he drank a lot and he died of some kind of liver problem. 
Okay. Or I'd make an excuse. He smoked a lot and then he had a lung problem. I never told him anything different. But I always believed what I knew in my heart to be true, that he had ended his own life. I can say this now like, you know, I'm drinking a glass of water because it's been so long. Right. Um, so when she opened the paper, my mother did not know what it was. And I looked down to find out that he had exsanguated. He bled to death. Right. And it was right there in black and white. <clears throat> and my mother turned to her, to the sister-in-law, and said, Oh, Yola, she didn't know. And Yola looked at me, her whole face turned white, and she said, I am so sorry. I didn't realize you didn't know. And I said, but I do know. Okay. At that particular moment, there was a network of windows that stretched the whole entire left side of the dining room. And it all blew open simultaneously. And a whole bunch of roaches, thousands of them. Mm came flying in and the servants were in the process of putting the food down onto this large, long table. And they had covered the entire room. You could smell them. You could hear their wings. The room was starting to darken and something just made the temperature of the room plummet. I could see my breath. Oh my gosh. That <laughs> I mean, sounds I, right out of a horror movie. Yeah, this is very definitely horror movie territory. Is that I was in Hawaii one time and we were eating at a, a very nice restaurant on the beach there at Waikiki. And <clears throat> I was there for business and I was sitting there with my direct boss and then a colleague. And I look off and across the ocean. And I see this cloud coming toward us, this black, thick cloud that's getting closer and closer and closer. And what it was, was a cloud of billions, maybe trillions of termites. And the next thing we know is these termites are in my hair, they're in our hair. They're going down my colleague's shirt. They're getting under her bra. Uh, They're all over her food. They're all over the table. And apparently that's something that happens in Hawaii on, you know, a few times a year. We just really picked a bad time to eat dinner on the beach. Oh, my. But is that invasion of cockroaches something that happens with Um, any kind of regularity there in the Philippines? No. Okay. Uh, We do have them, (laughs) but not to this extent. And this is a very, very... um, This is a neighborhood um, Mm -hmm. of people who were very much into their aesthetics and, you know, their paintings and making sure that their trees are trimmed, that type of environment. Yeah. And two of the women that were helping to serve came out with brooms. And my mother stood up. I ran towards the top of the steps to try to escape it because they were flying all over. Oh, yeah. Um, They were trying to hit them with the brooms. This is over the food. 
So some people were clambering over the table to cover the food. And my mother said, stop, in the name of Jesus Christ, you are not welcome here. Good for her. And, and suddenly they were all gone, like as if they'd never been there. I can't think of a, a natural reason. You know, what you're describing, Vic, is is like when a, yeah, a termites a, it was a swarm, a, right? Carpenter it's a natural process there in Hawaii. She's but not describing a natural thing. I don't think cockroaches swarm. I, you know, you don't have colonies of cockroaches. They scatter. Yeah, they, they don't. And Asiatic cockroaches... I mean, they they are just nasty in general. I mean, they fly, they get all over the place. I know that at least for Japanese, everyone is just terrified of them. They call them, um, the term is um, kokobori, and no one wants to be even near one of the dang things. I could not even imagine what a horde of the bloody things would be like. I can't. I live in Florida. We have palmetto bugs. They fly. They get really big. You yeah, know, those big but, two inch, two and a half inch guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But but they don't swarm in clouds. That would, uh, I, I think, my wife would be like, "Okay, we're moving to Alaska. I'm done." Yeah. <laughs> <Well>, Anna Maria, <laughs> I, I just, I, I, I'm hoping, I'm asking, an amazing story first off, but a little clarification. Yeah. It was not a situation. You're not describing a situation where. Once they landed and figured out that, oh, there's not really any food here. This isn't where I want to be. They kind of slowly drifted out. You're talking mm. about something where they were just suddenly gone. Gone. Yes. And here's okay. a question about that. I'm assuming mm -hmm. you're saying people were cleaning them out with brooms and everything else. So I imagine some of them got squished. Yes. You would were think that there would be. Of the squished ones or were they gone too? The, the only thing that got disrupted was the crockery that was holding the hot food. Wow. Uh, there were no evidence of any of them in the food, on the table, on the chairs. Um, there was nothing in my hair, whereas they were trying to get in my hair. Wow. Uh, they, were, they were up on the ceiling. They were up, up on the window jams. And suddenly they just spontaneously disappeared. So do you think that was a... Uh, I mean, if someone said to me, okay, here, Victor, read this uh, article and tell me what you think that is. Well, first off, my real answer would be, I don't have the slightest idea. But if they insisted, I would say that it seems like a demonic induced hallucination, which is kind of what you see in a lot of horror films. Yes. And and it's it has to be a collective hallucination. Collective because, I mean, hallucination, right? Yeah, uh, but my grandfather didn't know how to explain it. He was totally humiliated and embarrassed because it suggested that he wasn't keeping a clean house because roaches are usually an infestation of you know a different <laughs> variety, obviously. Yeah. Um, but you know, people were wondering, and everybody had lost their appetite for obvious reasons at that point. There was a malignancy, a, a feeling of real heaviness in the room when they came in. And it got dark mm -hmm. in the room. And, and then suddenly there was light again. They were gone. There was light again. Amazing. Have you seen the movie Constantine? No, I have not. Dave, do you know? Oh, that's the best. 
What's that? It's probably for the best. Oh, well, I, I completely disagree. But I like the movie a lot. But, I, but, I, the, I but there Reeves. is he a like Keanu Reeves. That's why. But that there is, is a scene in that movie where <laughs> there is a a demon. Okay, it's describing a situation where demons are walking the earth and they don't have the right to do so. But Keanu Reeves is attacked by this bug demon, not made of one bug, but billions of bugs. Yeah, that's that describe it pretty well, Dave. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, it kind of sounds like that's what, unfortunately, your family ran into. And it never happened again, thank goodness. Yes. Yeah, nobody's complaining about that. No. (laughs) (laughs) Is that the last time you had any activity like that, uh, that was that kind of negative? Is that the last time? Um, No. Uh, There's a span of time when things are very quiet. Okay, and some kind of upheaval always precipitates it, mm-hmm. which is why I always go back to the theory of you always have to have a catalyst. It could mm-hmm. either be dissension, it could be some type of uh, conflict, mm-hmm. it could be prolonged stress, it could be a health problem, uh, or it could be a haunted object. So in answer to, I forget who asked me the question. Was that you, David? David? Yeah. David. No, David. David. Yeah. yeah. So David, in answer to your question, the most recent one that is associated with that, and I will not name it. I refuse to recognize it, uh, is when I visited my mother, and this now comes closer in time to about 2012, uh, in 2012, my mother still lives in Connecticut. She has retired at this point. Uh, she lives alone, and she has an altar, an altar with the Christ child's, you know, the, mm-hmm. the usual altar you would see uh, right. in a church. She has it reproduced on mm-hmm. top of her dresser, which makes it a very, what you would call a sacred space in the vernacular of the Roman Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. But outside of that, the the condominium itself seems to be dark, no matter how many lights you turn on. So into this, I visited her. I came on a Friday afternoon, and by Friday evening, we had gone out to dinner I was driving her back. I was staying the weekend because I live in Pennsylvania, so it's quite a drive. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was staying the night, and as I was walking down the hall to prepare for bed, it was coming on at about maybe 1130, I would say, give or take. I overheard her watching the news on TV, which is what she normally does to end the night. I passed by the thermostat that controlled the heating. And I distinctly heard, get out. So of course, through your normal ears, not like it was projected into your mind or anything, just no, through my normal ears, my, my Mm -hmm. right ear to be exact. Mm -hmm. So I naturally like to remove all the possible, you know, rule out. Right. Oakham's razor. Possible explanations. Yes. So mm-hmm. I turn around. 
I walk back down the hall. I check to see the TV and it's the news. Okay. okay. So it's not like it's a dramatic show where some guy's yelling, get out and someone else. It's a, it's the news. Right. They're giving you stock reports and sports scores and that kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I walk back. I now enter the room and I notice the room is freezing cold. Mm. Okay. Now this is now late spring. So we're going into not as warm as the spring right now, but it was late spring. It was getting warmer. So then I went back to where I heard those words, checked the thermostat, found that it was set to 70. I walk back in. I prepare for bed. I get into, into the bed. I had a comforter on top of me. I shut the light off. And this is when you want to sit down. I feel someone tried to stab me with something very sharp right between my shoulder blades. Ooh. So my whole back arches up, obviously. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, I get up. I shoot out of the bed, turn the light on, take off the covers, and I'm feeling around the bed to see what could that possibly be? It could be a bed spring or something. Yeah, yeah, it could mm-hmm. be anything, right? Mm-hmm. There's nothing there. It's right. nice and smooth. There's nothing there. But then I feel a presence. I feel someone looking right at me. Mm-hmm. And it's not just they're looking right at me. They're looking as in glaring. But I don't see anything. But you, you could, in a non-visual way, perceive that malevolent glare. Yes. Okay. So then I thought, ah, you know, you've had a stressful day. I shut the light off, get back in the bed, pull the covers over me, and I'm now lying on my side. And now there's two blades that attempt to stab me from inside the mattress. Mm. One by my stomach, the other one by my upper back, because I was lying on my side. So, of course, I can't. I have no idea. (laughs) I get up, and this time it is freezing in the room. And I feel like uh, it's hard to explain, but it's almost like time stood still. I turn both lights on, both lamps, just in case one starts to flicker and die. And I actually sit at the edge of the bed and I said the entire rosary, because that's what I have Uh with me. I said the entire rosary in the process as I kept saying it and got to the end. The room perceptibly warmed up. Uh So much so that it became very comfortable. And then I shut the lights off. I went back in bed. And the next thing you know, it was morning. So the rosary worked. Yes. Just like the cross when she held it against the window worked. Mm-hmm. And this was at your mom's house. This is at my mother's house in Connecticut. Yes. Right. This is her her retirement, wherever she lives in her retirement in Connecticut. Yes. Has she described anything like that happening to her? Here is the dilemma with my mother. 
For the longest time, she avoids anything. I mean, I write horror, as you well know. Uh I probably write the worst that you will ever read. I'm I'm certain that's not true. (laughs) No, I have have read your stuff. It is is phenomenal. (laughs) Thank you. But anyway, to make a long story short, she shies away from material like that because the impression I got is that she was traumatized early on mm-hmm. by what had happened, I mean, of course, to my father, as well as what was happening in my grandmother's house. Yes. And then when she was with me with the episode with the paternal grandfather, when that happened, she had no explanation. And she was really convinced that it had reared its ugly head all over again. Which would be horrifying. Yes. So now we're going on into decades here. And then this next one, I was grappling, honestly grappling as to what to tell her. She scarcely enters that room. She has someone come in and clean it. Mm-hmm. She's always just going from the living room to the kitchen, to the dining room, into the study and into her own bedroom. Mm-hmm. I was very reluctant, and finally I reached out to a family friend. I took a walk down to the local park, ended up at a Starbucks, mm-hmm. um, and I called them and I said, look, I need your advice. I just had some kind of an encounter, and I have no idea what this is about. And you know, my mother would not want to hear about that. She has to live there. And they said, don't tell her. Let's figure out what to do first, because she will be so terrified that she might have a heart attack. Mm. So as it turned around, I started reaching out to the clergy to find out the nature of what it was in there. And then one day, one of her friends told her, and she, what she had done was that she renovated the room. She had hardwood put on. And Mm -hmm. I'm not really sure to this day why she did what she did. But she chose to have the room fixed up, and then she had an altar put in that room. Okay. And since I have seen that altar, I have noticed that there is quite a difference in the feel of the room. Toward the positive? Towards the positive. Good. That, that's a horrifying encounter. Yeah. It's hard to explain to people because uh, it, it's not like I actually saw anything. Uh, it, it was more of the encounter of whatever it was that was in the bed. It was the feeling that I had that something was hovering over me, looking at me with the intention, some kind of malevolent intention. So it's not something I, well, I don't know, maybe you can photograph it. I'm not a uh, paranormal investigator, but. Um, I, I think you can photograph those things. I think you can. Can I, can I yeah. put forth a few thoughts without, I won't be interrupting you if I do? No, no, not at all. Okay. Um, first off, I find the idea of something stabbing at me when I'm in bed, terrifying. Mm-hmm. That's the place where you should be safe, comfortable, warm, uh, protected. I don't think... Most people, when they run into something such as a haunting or some 
some psychic phenomenon. I don't think they're generally seeing things. I do think they are generally feeling things. Mm-hmm. Um, I have noticed, and Dave, maybe you can you can talk about this, that <clears throat> photographs that are supposed to actually be of ghosts um, rarely show a full body. They show just parts of the body, snippets of the body. And if they show something like a face or a head or shoulders, those parts of the body are much smaller than than real life. It's like they simply don't have enough energy to manifest a, a full figure uh, of the regular size of a human. So I think probably the most effective way for them to work is to manifest that that emotion, that feeling, that uh, awareness of of dread and something being wrong that you were feeling. I agree with that. Yeah, I, I from my perspective, uh, you, you classify first. I would classify two different things, right? So a haunting, uh, just sort of spirit activity, uh, is definitely very different than demonic activity uh at least from my my own personal experiences and uh you know in in having experience in at night in bed with something demonic attacking me Uh that uh it's very different than dealing with a haunted location that's got some you know friendly little ghost to it right Uh and i think the way that they work um is different i mean maybe the physics behind it are maybe the same i don't know i haven't seen very many really good photograph evidences of either case uh i have seen things visually that other people have seen on paranormal investigations mainly dealing with uh you know something uh uh a light that shouldn't be there or something like that. I've never seen an apparition myself, but my wife has. Uh, so I, I don't know about that. I know from a demonic standpoint, I think there's, there's a lot to what you're saying, Victor, which is that uh, there are impressions giving, given mentally. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know that one of my experiences, you know, not only did I see it, but I could feel it. Uh, and I pushed it away. My arm kind of went into it, but I could feel some sort of energy field there. My, my whole arm hurt the next day. Uh, so, you know, there's something physical to it. That wasn't just an impression that was given. I actually had a physical reaction that lasted beyond the experience. Um, but I could certainly see... Uh, an explanation of a mental image being given to you that you're seeing something. Uh, and it could be done, you know, well, we've had this conversation, Victor, with some of your experiences, the idea that it could be uh, broadcast almost to multiple people in a room, which would be something like the cockroaches. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, or were they actually the there physically? Probably not. Especially if there was no, you know, dead bugs left over <laughs> uh, after squishing them, right? Uh, so 
Was there some manipulation of light that made it appear that they were there? That's possible too. I don't know. Uh, we've talked about some exorcists talk about uh, demons being able to manipulate light so that it appears that something is real that's not. I don't know. Lots of possibilities. But I think when you look into the negative demonic side of things, I think there are more possibilities that are a lot different than just uh, Casper the Friendly Ghost who who likes to hang out in his old house. No. Well, the other thing, too, is, I mean, the more frightening possibility than just light or shadow or hallucinations is... If you take the model of Baal Zebub, Lord of the Flies, then maybe they're actually real. There were real things that are, you know, the sacred animal to whatever beast happened to be occupying that room. But I do have one quick question for you, Anna Maria. If so, I can understand your mom's absolute reluctance and avoidance of this type of material based upon her experiences. My question is, what compelled you to go the other way and to educate people in these matters? I think that for a long time, JJ, I wanted to take the mystery of what we call the unknown, out of the unknown, because when you label something unknown and sinister and terrifying, it's fear-based, and they feed on fear. They love to mesmerize us and take us aback and shock us and produce paroxysms of terror. That's their objective because they they want to devour us, as my father said, to take our soul. And I wanted to take that out of their equation by saying, okay, we're going to recognize what they do. We're going to learn what the enemy is about. And in so doing, we can now be in a position to protect ourselves from them. And I think what is happening as time progress, uh, and you know, they're listening, they realize they're losing their tools of power because as you get to know them better, and they always say, know your enemy and be closer to them so that you have control over them. They lose their potency. They lose their ability to strike fear. And I think that's my rationale for writing these things. These are all cautionary tales telling people what not to do. Don't try this at home, kids. Um, and honestly, I think that's one of the that's one of the elements that help to elevate your books beyond just oh, this is a simple horror thing that's meant to scare you. Uh, it does seem to encompass that noble intention of educating rather than 
you know, maintaining that mystique. And uh, I think that's one of the reasons why I really have been drawn to your works. And I'm glad to know that a new one is about to come out. So, <laughs> Thank you, JJ. I, I try. I, you know, I try to make it as entertaining as possible. Um, I, I try to be as clear as possible uh, what these things are. And, and I, at the end, show what their limits are because they are limited. They can be concurred. Uh, when they attack, you know, everything is destroyed, it appears, but really uh, they, they don't really have the means to be as superior as they think they are. And I'm not gonna say that in a dare, I'm just basically saying that they are limited. Exactly. That's why we typically were classified the demonic as preternatural rather than supernatural, that they're locked into either a time, a place, a person. But in all, but really the, the main point is, is that they are limited. Yes, they have gross abuses of power. If you give them that power, they can do almost anything, but you have to give it to them. I agree. Well, speaking so, of your new book, why don't you take a minute and tell us about it? Yeah. Okay, this is a book that I um, actually chose a co-author. The co-author is the person who whose memoir it, it is about. Uh, the book delves into two lives. One, you will see there's a dualistic quality to the book. One is on the positive, the other one is on the negative. Uh, Tom, my co-author, represents a positive path in his evolution uh, spiritually. And the other one represents someone who somehow fell into the dark. Uh, not by invitation, but I think by happenstance. Uh, and they talk about people who are haunted for a lifetime and this particular person was haunted for a lifetime. Um, the inspiration from the book just came out of a conversation one day. Uh, Tom and I had been friends on Facebook for a long time. You know how there's a lot of people like JJ, we met on Instagram, you know. Um, social media has taken some potency in the sense that people who normally would not meet uh, meet. Mm -hmm. uh, and in the process, they find their interests, their commonalities, their values. And in this particular case, we had in common an interest in lifetime abductions. Mm -hmm. Tom is a, primarily a ufologist uh, and a pattern researcher. He looks at patterns between sightings of UFOs, earthquakes, uh, land masses, certain topography and things of that nature. I was, on the other hand, interested, as you know, in the supernatural. And together, we thought we would create a book uh, that showed those two sides of the coin and how something that's disparate actually is part and parcel, probably different sides of a, the same realm. Uh, so the book starts with his life being nice and sedate until he notices he's missing time. Uh, he goes into lucid dreaming and in the process meets two American Indians that are standing on either side of his bed. Tom doesn't understand the significance of it, but it goes on and on. And then one day he opens social media to find there's a Facebook group 
that meditates on purpose to elicit sightings of flying saucers. Okay, let's not talk to, about to, the to try to generate these sightings. To try and generate these sightings, apart from thought forms. Mm-hmm. Okay, I want to put sounds that a lot like uh, CE five. <laughs> yes, exactly. So then he meets up with the gentleman who is part of the membership, and he invites him to cross over to Connecticut, saying that they could really see UFOs based on meditations and things. Tom wasn't so sure. So it took a while for him to think about it. And then finally he decided, I'm going to sleep on it. So sleep he did. And one night he had the two Indians manifest on either side of his bed again. And the message he came out of it was, you don't need a group, just ask. So Tom wandered out into his patio in a nice, cool summer evening after dinner. And he sat on his Adirondack chair. He closed his eyes. And he meditated and he asked. And he did that for several weeks without fail. Finally, he had his first book that was completed. He uploaded it on Amazon. And on the evening of it, his wife calls him to the living room. Tom, come down here quick. So he rushes down the steps. He comes out to the living room where there's a a nice huge window, picture window. And there are these lights. They're huge orbs of red light coming across in pairs right across his window in the sky. Total of them were nine. Kind of like just passing in review, as you would say in the military. Mm -hmm. And she said, what are those? And he said, well, they're certainly not planes and they're They don't look military to me. I have no idea what they are, but they're pretty big. It looks like it's less than 500 feet away. That's close. Eight months later. I'm sorry, go ahead. I said, that's close. Yeah. So eight months later, uh, he uploads the second volume of his book. That same evening, he is sitting in front of a lake, Lake Winnipesaukee in New Hampshire, His wife is sitting next to him on a bench, and they're looking out, and he hears telepathically in his head, look up. So he looks up right across the water and above, and there is this huge luminous object. It literally lit up the entire area. And he touched his wife, Rita, And said, are you seeing what I'm seeing? And of course, she's terrified. Let's go inside. Another eight months goes by. He uploads the third book. He is driving on the highway. Suddenly, the highway is all clear. And he sees a pinprick of light approaching his car as he's driving down the turnpike. It gets larger and larger and larger. And finally, boom, it hits his windshield. And the windshield shimmers with static. And then it slides off in a sinusoidal pattern, you know, like going up and down, up and down, Mm -hmm. up and down. And he thought, well... 
That can't be an insect. It's too big. Why did it do that to my windshield? You know, he was aghast. It didn't Stopped break his on- windshield. Well, the windshield was very hot. It okay. didn't break it, but it was very hot to the touch, according to him. Mm-hmm. So not once, not twice, but three times when he asked in a pattern Right before he uploaded the book, he had these sightings. And then there was more. He started sending questionnaires out to try to find people who were actually abducted. And, and, you know, you're going to get crazy people out there. So he had probably 50 responses. He weeded through the ones that he thought weren't legitimate. It came down to several, and then it came down to five. And one of them was this woman who lived alone. And that's what this book is about, the other part of this book. So here's what happened. Tom said to me, you need to call this woman. And I I don't know her. I get a lot of requests from people to write stories to, you know, I also have a blog, so I put in a short story in there every couple of weeks that I hear about from different people. Um, You know, if if you're familiar with my first book portal, that was actually a compilation of a number of years uh, of different stories from different people all over the world. Um, You know, partly autobiographical, but also partly other stuff in this one. He wanted me to home in on this lifetime experiencer. And when I say lifetime, it really truly is. She lives on an isolated part and I'm not allowed to say exactly where, but for the purposes of the book, I wrote a fictitious little town tucked into a tiny corner of Connecticut that borders New York. And it began for her when she was about six years old And what I did with this particular book is that I used a lot of backstories to support why what was happening was happening. Um, Backstories can work one of two ways. It can give you a glimpse of the reasons why things are naturally occurring at the present time, but it can also pull you away from the suspense. And from what I could tell from people, uh, readers that have read it so far, some people really love the backstory. Some people feel it pulled them away Mm -hmm. into more like fiction land, but it's not. I assure you, it is not fiction. This is all true according to this woman. Correct. So back in 1955, um, soldiers from... World War II had already been back. They're rebuilding and getting married and having families. One of them was a gentleman who was a trooper inside a tank. Um, You know, for those of you that served in World War II, I don't know how old you guys are. Mm, (laughs) Quite a bit before my time. Just a a little. (laughs) Just a little. So um, when you're inside the tank... There's only five of you, basically. There's the gunner, and then there's the guy that's in the back. I forget what he's called. There's the guy that loads the ammunition, and there's the guy that peeks through the porthole to see what's coming up. 
And then there's a guy there that just sits there and shakes all day and saying, we're going to get killed. We're going to get killed. We're going to get killed. So anyway. Um, that's my job, you know, by the way. That's her job. <laughs> <laughs> so Shailene's father was a lieutenant. And the way the story goes is that he, his tank battalion, the five of them, had stopped. He needed to answer the call of nature, so he leaped out of the tank and started running, you know, as obscurely as possible. Uh, we're talking the fall of Germany at this time, so you're close to the Rhine River. If you geographically look at Germany, um, one of the major areas that were ransacked by U.S. forces uh, was a huge city whose name I cannot remember. It's not Frankfurt. It might Rome, be Hamburg. Rome, uh, Hamburg. Um, it anyway, it there, might be, yeah. There are several large cities in Germany. Yeah. And many of them were essentially destroyed during World War II. Yes. So there's one that is on the Rhine or close to the Rhine River. Um and when Germany fell, they crossed the Rhine and went into this town. Uh -huh. um, everybody was burned to death except for him because he did that life-saving act of answering to the call of nature. He comes Needing back. to get out of the tank. Yes. Okay. He comes back. Everything is, you know, one guy's leaping out of the tank. He's aflame. The rest are dead. And so he got reassigned to a different tank battalion. Mm -hmm. You could just imagine the anger that you have having bonded with four other gentlemen for a number of months. You got to know them. Uh, you know, you slept in the tank. You ate in the tank. You did whatever you had to do in that tiny little confined space. And suddenly they were all gone. Well, that I would imagine compounded with survivor's guilt. Yes. So into the new tank he goes, and then as they were foraging through one particular town, they had to exit to get supplies. They had to get food. So they walked into the rubble of a huge building uh, and came upon a kitchen that had rotting fruit, maybe some pieces of stale bread. There were rats scurrying. There were birds flying. And on one side, there was a Nazi soldier in uniform that was already injured and was lying, almost like prostate on the ground. Uh -huh. One of his tank mates, the one that said, I'm scared, I'm scared, I'm scared. Anyway, he, <laughs> he came upon him, of course, right? He comes upon the one that you don't want him to encounter. Uh -huh. uh, and then he calls attention to everybody. And the German is reaching for his gun, a pistol. Right. And Shailene's father reaches for the gun, beats him to it, and shoots him dead. Wow. As a trophy, he keeps it. It's a Luger, which mm -hmm. is a typical weapon. Well, you know that. Yeah, that was, that was allowed during World War II. They can't do that anymore. Oh, so he decides it's going to be one of many trophies. He takes a few other things, 
surmises that in that rubble, it was a Jewish family that owned the building and they were, something happened to them. There were German Jews. They were not there anymore. Uh, his anger ratchets so much more. Uh, they ransack, they take whatever they could, as you would in a war. And then finally, they make it back to the U.S. and he stuffs the Luger in a duffel. The duffel makes its way into the pantry of his family's house. His oldest daughter, Shailene, opens it one day after school and sees the duffel bag. You still have the stains from whatever. Uh, she nudges it with her foot and it moves. So her mother, thinking she was prone to hallucinating, childhood flights of fancy, discounted it, but then told the father when he came home from work, uh, you know, your daughter is trying to disrupt whatever is in there. Well, he's alarmed, as any father would be, because there's a gun in there. Mm -hmm. Takes it out. And this is where things, you know, like this bad horror movie. Why did you do that? <laughs> Are you crazy? Right? Mm -hmm. He climbs over her bed where there's a crawl space into the attic. And he deposits the gun up there and promptly shuts the trap door to the attic. So now the child, only about five or six, is lying right underneath a ceiling that is holding a Luger that has killed thousands of people during battle. You know where I'm going, right? Mm, there are many places you could go, but okay. yes, I think I kind of do. Okay. So about a week after this happens... Something is materializing from the ceiling. It is a an amorphous black cloud, according to Shailene, from what she recalls. She shut her eyes and then she couldn't move. She found herself paralyzed like a night terror. And then the next thing she knew, she opened her eyes and there were four children standing at the foot of her bed and they look like they've been through a bomb blast. Their clothes were tattered. Their eyes were bloodshot. They looked like they were starving and they had this look, this blank look on their faces. But they had no feet. And that's where it all begins. Hmm. JJ. When you say, go ahead. I'm sorry, JJ. Go ahead. Oh no, no, go ahead. I, I'm, I'm, I'm finding myself not knowing where to go next. When you say where it all begins, what does it all involve? Well, it went from sightings of that nature mm -hmm. to where one day she decided they were all losing so much sleep. She was just a child. She had a younger brother. This youngest sister of the three was still basically in a crib. And mm -hmm. this thing kept coming out of the ceiling. 
and she was terrified to go to bed. I would be too. She couldn't tell her parents because they were distant from her for some reason. Her father seemed very cold to her. And so she never really bonded with either one of them, which I thought was strange. But as time went on, as they grew up, they had to deal with whatever was in the ceiling. And then eventually, the whole building, they were in a building which the father owned. And down in the bottom, the ground floor was a grocery mm-hmm. that the father ran with a brother-in-law. One day, that all just burned down, and she was so relieved because she knew that whatever was in the duffel and in the ceiling was gone in the fire. Little did she know her father had retrieved it while they were gone and had put it away, and so it had escaped the fire. Why the father did that, nobody knows. But the next thing that happened, and and you have to remember, this is a series of interviews, Victor. I had to call her, maybe talk to her every couple of days in a given week. Right. uh, Starting in November, actually late in October and into November and into part of December before the holidays, before I finally sat down and started writing this in January. So she's now in her 70s, and some of the information she had was starting to get sketchy. Right, as, as would happen. Yeah. And so when she got engaged was the next event that really was indelibly etched in her mind. She told that to me in such a way that she felt like she was reliving it. They were in a car. It was her fiancé's car, and they were driving to her parents because now the parents were living in a house house that was on the outskirts of the town. This is still the same town. They had just purchased a trailer that they were going to live in, um, you know, away from the town a little bit. So as they were done with that, they were going to her parents for dinner. On the way there, they had to cross a wooded area, woods on either side of a narrow road, Mm -hmm. when suddenly something just sat on top of the hood of the car, the trunk. It was so heavy that the motor started straining. And her fiancé looked at her, looked at the rear view, and he said, don't look. And he started to get very pale and shaky. She wanted to look. She turned and he said, no, 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 don't look. Make sure your door is locked and the window rolled up. You know, back then, Mm -hmm. this was, you know, in the 60s at this point. So the window was rolled up. She was looking. She said, what is it? What's happening? Why is the motor laboring like that. There's something riding in the back. I don't want you to see it. He started trying to push the motor to its limit. He was pushing on to get to the parents. And she said, where are we going with this? 
we're going to go to your parents. Don't do that because I don't want whatever it is to get to the parents' house. So they're moving along and he decides we're going to go back to the bar where our friends are and we'll deal with it there. He then makes a quick turn and you could feel the car pull, she said, to one side because whatever it was was seeking purchase. And, and, they done it. and it's heavy. Mm-hmm. And they're getting to, when, when I first heard the story, I thought to myself, honestly, this is Bigfoot. Yeah, it had makes to sense to me, yeah. Yeah, it makes, doesn't it? It, it, mm-hmm. it, it yeah. smacks a big, so they get to the town limits and suddenly it lifts off. It's gone. Okay? Mm-hmm. They park again right in front of the bar. They dash out. They go tell their friends. One of the friends says, why don't I just go with you? She turns to her fiance. What is it that you saw? Because you told me not to turn. I'd rather not tell you. What's the reply? I hate that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so now it's playing with her head, right? It makes it worse right. because he mm-hmm. won't tell her. So, I mean, I understand from the sense of you're trying to be protective. Okay, she might not be able to handle it. Keep it to yourself and tell one of your other friends, right? So the other friend was going to ride along. He said, no, 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 I can handle this. We'll be fine. It won't be there on the way back. They get back in the car. They go again right through the same road. Once they enter the wooded area, it jumps right back on. So now they're in a dilemma. It's now scratching the roof of the car. You could hear the nails. They finally get to the parents' house. And she said, don't call them, don't honk. I don't want them to come out and get hurt. He breaks the car. They're on the driveway. He shuts off the motor. And then she turns to him, where is it? Where is it? And he said, it's right next to you at the window. Don't look. So she cowers towards him, kind of like, you know, she's trying to hug him, trying to get away from it. And -hmm. guess what happens next? Comes to the window. No. (laughs) The fiance tries to strangle her. Oh, okay. Okay. He's trying to strangle her. She's fighting for breath. She's pulling away suddenly the door behind them, okay? The driver's side door, because he's now facing her with both hands on her throat. Door falls open. He faints and falls right on the driveway. At this point, there must have been a scuffle. The parents come out. Mm-hmm. They see him. Her mother screams, what's going on? He's fainted, yada, yada. Meanwhile, Shailene's gasping for breath. So you tell me, what is that? I don't have the I have slightest no idea. idea. I don't have the slightest idea. I I do have a, a concept that I have talked to JJ and Dave and some other people in our group. Um, I, I call it the paranormal zoo. And one of the, one of the guests on my podcast, I asked them, he was a, a paranormal investigator. I said, look, what's in the zoo, in the zoo, you know, we hear of ghosts and we hear of demons and we hear of 
other things like what you're talking about here that doesn't seem to fit into any reasonably defined category. So one of my goals over time is to quantify what's in the zoo. What are the various creatures that are in the zoo, whether they're supernatural, whether they're something else. I mean, certainly uh, an 800 pound Bigfoot would be enough to change the path of your car. If you're sitting on the, if you're sitting on the trunk, but this doesn't sound like something that was a, a physical being. I mean, this was, this was something that was capable of, uh, I suppose, possessing the fiance. Yeah. And how do you, how are these things classified? I don't know. I mean, I, <clears throat> I, I suppose it could be a situation where there's an overarching uh, category of, of demon and then those demons can manifest in dozens of different ways because it it doesn't seem like when you hit, listen to all these stories and i you know i'm going to have to i'm very 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 lucky in that i have had experiences that have only happened uh in two places one is in hospitals uh and i've talked about those stories and there's they're frightening stories to me and they impacted me very deeply and then some things that happened when I was a child that one of which I very much thought was a, a monster type thing that turned out to just be a regular human. But there, was, there were others. Um, but when you're talking about this, <clears throat> excuse me, sorry, you know, this situation where whatever this thing was, it kind of seemed to be bound by, by space, you know, when they came out of the woods... It wasn't there on the car anymore. When they went back in the woods, it shows back up. And then it seems to have a horrible impact on the fiance, whom I can only assume was the kind of guy who wasn't normally planning on choking his girlfriend. Yeah. I was very puzzled when I first heard this. Mm -hmm. I was so puzzled that I had to call her back a couple of days later when I looked at my notes and I thought I really must have missed something here mm -hmm. because I could not wrap my head around it with what little I know of, you know, of Bigfoot. I've never had an encounter. I have no idea what little I know of creatures that could be out in the woods other than missing 411, you know, which mm -hmm. is a totally different story. Yeah, so I called her again. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, I want to make sure I have your facts straight. You know, at this point, I had a signed permission form. I, I just want to make sure I have the full story. And she recounted it to me, and it was the same. Mm -hmm. So I, I asked her, what, what, what do you think this was? Um, and she told me that she felt she had actually seen it. A few weeks later, when they were on their way to the site of the trailer. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you have to remember this was, I'm trying to think now, 70s and people were driving around in a small town with nothing to do on a Friday night. It was one of those nights where they went to the trailer, but they weren't married yet. So they were still, you know, living separately. Mm hmm and they were driving along looking for something to do, and they end up on this country lane, 
and she looks at her fiance. She's talking to him. At this point, she's a little concerned about him, needless to say, because of what he did. Mm-hmm. Um, and and some people would say, "Up, oh, we're going to break this off because you have a predilection for something I'd rather not deal with. But anyway, she persevered. He was fine. And then she was talking to him. And she was actually looking past him to see something standing by a barn on the side of the road. And what she told me was it looked like a humanoid. It had a reptilian cast to it. As in green? As in green and scaled. Scales, yeah. Yeah. And it had a weapon or some kind of ammunition belt and was very strange in the way it was looking right at her. That would get my attention. And it had claws, lobster claws for hands. Huh. Well, believe me, you're going to pay attention to this thing. (laughs) and he wanted to know what she was looking at. She didn't want to tell him for some reason. There's an aspect here that disquiets me because my understanding of malevolent hauntings is one of the things that they try and do is separate people. Very much. Instead of them coming together to say, this is what I saw. Yeah. That's what I experienced. This is this is the total opposite. He didn't share with her what he saw in the back of the car. Mm-hmm. She's not sharing with him what just passed by. Mm-hmm. Literally. Just a few feet from the car. <clears throat> so there's that aspect of isolation mm-hmm. in in her story. It, it's almost like she is not just in a remote town, but she's also somehow being separated from the rest of the population by fear of ridicule, by fear of being, you know, casted a pariah, I guess, being crazy. Right. Plus the the person that she should be able to trust the most or would want to trust the most isn't communicating to her. Yeah, and has already shown violence, and the violence escalated. Mm. They moved into a trailer, and I don't know if the trailer was infested or what the story was. Um, There was chanting outside the trailer. There were these figures. Which was associated with people they could see or just coming from nowhere? Well, the way it started was it was chanting. She didn't really see anything. Uh But then she woke up, and she didn't know this at the time, but when she woke up, she she was alone. The husband was working nights. That's another rift. Her her days are spent alone. Her evenings are spent. Mm -hmm. So we've got that working against us as well. Right. She's lying in the bed. She wakens to a group of hooded figures coming out of the bathroom. And going into the adjacent room, which would have been the nursery she was making for her baby. 
So, of course, she's alarmed. She gets up and she follows them and there's nothing there. She comes out towards the kitchen. You know, the trailer is uh, double wide, but it's longer than it's wider. Right. She gets to the living room area past the kitchen and the door is wide open. As if somebody had, as if these things had come in through the kitchen door. Yes. Hmm. Well, at this point, I'm looking for a dumpster to live in. <laughs> <laughs> one that locks. Yeah, yeah. One that locks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, you don't have an apartment? We've got a dumpster. Yeah. <laughs> Solid steel. Big lock. Solid steel. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll deal with that. <laughs> um, Anna Marie, I was going back to the your co-author uh, for a moment when you said that, you know, he dreamed of two Indians given the location of where that is. I'm just wondering if that could be related to um, the um, Algonquin. You know, I, where he is, is not a secret. He lives in Troy, Troy, New York. Uh, I am not that well-versed on um, American Indian uh, culture. So I'm not sure who's locally, you know, traditionally who resided in that particular area. But his sense of it was that they had been there long before he moved into that home. Well, it's kind of fascinating because I have uh, one of my really good friends from college. He lives in central New, uh, central New York State, and he actually just completed his Ph.D. in the Algonquin Standing Stones, uh, which and he specializes in kind of Jungian archetypal dreams. And that's what he did his uh, dissertation on. And those those uh, those stones have such a rich history to them uh in fact um the the lady who is now currently leading the language resurgence of the algonquin peoples she had a dream where uh, she had some of her ancestors speaking to her in some language she did not recognize whatsoever. And then she was driving through a particular town, saw a name, and she recognized the name. And that actually prompted her to begin studying it and getting others involved. And now it's actually taking off again. So I know it's tangentially related, but I was just kind of curious because of the location itself. His interpretation of these two were that they were his spirit guides, that their goal was to protect him and make him realize that he was quote-unquote, the way they said it, embedded into the plan. That somehow he had a mission to try to share with people. Uh, that there's something that exists beyond what we see. And that there's extraterrestrial life out there. So he felt supercharged to take on the abductee uh, phenomena. 
but what is interesting about this one is that it took him on a totally different voyage, which he did not expect. Um, well, and I, I was curious about that, how that ties in, because he put the article out there or an ad, right? Yes. Looking for people that had experiences similar to his. Mm -hmm. Does her experience, and I don't want to ruin the book for people, but does her experience no. eventually turn into, is there a tie-in with something UFO-like? Or Let's put it this way. I, I, I will tell you this. The, the impression that I got, because only because, you know, this is, again, through the lens of my own experience, and mm -hmm. I've had more experience with the supernatural rather than, when, than E.T., um, it, it came to me as an infestation. It was a haunted object introduced into the family home. It then started infesting, uh, starting with the children, eventually moving on to the father who held on to the gun. Right. It then followed one particular person as she moved from place to place, and that was the oldest child, Shailene. Um, you will find that markedly absent is any kind of activity that I am aware of. Now, you got to remember, I'm interviewing one person. I haven't interviewed the rest of the family. I only have permission for one. Um, but it seems like it's centered around her. For some reason, it marked her. And I will tell you the most terrifying part about this. Uh, I know we're going into two hours now. Um, so I'll talk fast. <laughs> If you're not tired, I'm not tired. <laughs> we're, um, we're good with nice, long conversations. Don't worry okay. about that. Okay. Um, it, I, I was trying to find meaning. And I, I wanted, the way I wrote the book was I wrote their story concurrently. I went from chapter one with Tom and eventually moved on to the fifth chapter with Shailene. Went back to Tom, back to Shailene. So much so I was writing two stories at the same time because I was mm -hmm. looking for parallels. Right. And the, the parallel here is not a parallel, Victor or David. It was unmistakably to me the juxtaposition of two opposite polarities the one which is of rising benevolence, the spirit guides, which is the American Indians, and a man evolving to understand his place in the universe in his twilight years. And the other one that began as an infestation that has now spiraled into terror and isolation. And as I became more involved in the book and I had her entire narrative in a notebook, I had to struggle myself to put it down because, you know, you write best when you're alone. Um, yes. And in order to write it effectively, you have to feel what the person was feeling at the time. And JJ, I was terrified. I was so terrified. I turned all the lights on especially when I got to one part. And at this point on the opposite chapter, Tom was grappling with a heart attack. He could no longer handle the information she was sending him his way. Uh -huh. 
she was sending him photographs of what was being done to her. He had to take a step back. He had to take a mental vacation from the whole thing. And in the process, his health started to deteriorate. Mm -hmm. So it became more than we could handle. And as we were doing this, as I was writing this, Tom was doing some marketing on social media. And one of the people there made a comment, be very careful what you delve into. Please, please do what you can to protect yourselves. And I took that seriously because what was coming out to me was not an abduction. So as I wrote it, I came upon one of Tom's nightmares and I ended up one night having the same nightmare and it was very, very real. So I put the book down that was in process and I took a break for about, I would say four or five days. I entered a church every day. I took communion everywhere I went. And then I went back and then I soldiered through and I wrote it down. But things started changing in 2017. It went from this to something that was physically abusing her. And then she ended up getting tagged. You probably heard of these implants. Mm -hmm. Yes, I've heard of implants. She had an implant, like a small pill, that was traveling in one of her hands. I've heard that also. Yep. And she had one that was in her face. And when she had her first, I think, first or second child, she was really compelled to go to the doctor because she felt like it was time to tell someone what was happening to her. She made her way to the doctor's office. She actually had an appointment. And then at the last minute, she was so afraid of how the community was going to react that the doctor would, go, would turn around and reject her, laugh at her. She ended up in a supermarket and then there's the implant coming and emerging out of the eyelid of her eye. And people saw it. Oh, my God. How, how large was this implant on her face? It must have been like a, you know, like a vitamin E pill or something. Cause or she a dime had, or a nickel or something. Uh, yeah, something, yeah she, something large enough to, for people to see. Yeah. And, and she, she thought at first they were looking at the baby because she had the baby. She had to bring the baby in, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. She had the baby on the supermarket cart. The infant was reaching for, you know, how they reach for everything. And they were yes. looking at her. They weren't looking at the infant. And so she started wondering what was going on. She ran to the bathroom with the cart. She looks in the mirror and there it is. It's coming out of her eye. Wow. And what does it do once it's out of her, her of her eye? Well, I, I think what happened was she turned away in a panic uh -huh. and it must have been reabsorbed because the one that was in her hand was reabsorbed. She picked it up because her husband saw it. And as she put it on her palm because there was a dog, she was afraid the dog was going to get it. It reabsorbed itself into the palm of her hand. Hmm. 
Now that's interesting. I haven't heard of one yeah, this, being these, reabsorbed. These, I've not heard of that. Heard of that either. And solid materials. I mean, our minds don't think of them as being reabsorbed. But that's well. You could think. I mean, you would think potentially technology would be maybe something you know nanoparticle that yes. could potentially be passed through skin to be to work its way back into the body. Mm-hmm. So I could think of a technology that might allow that, not one that we have, but I can yeah. think, <laughs> I can think You're of not going down to Walmart to get this. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the first time I've heard of that. Now, it's, I'm not, I mean, I listen to a lot of UFO stuff, but I'm not by no means, an, I'm not an expert, but, uh, but that is an interesting thought of having, I'm going to have to look for that now to see if I see that anywhere else. Well, I was sitting while you were talking, I was sitting here thinking about people I've interviewed in the past. And this is the eighth instance of people waking up to Native Americans by their bed that I've run into. That's interesting to me because I probably haven't interviewed more than 20 people and eight of them have had this experience. That's interesting. You know, that, that's a pattern. So that, that's a pattern. So that means to me that that's something that is relatively common, you know, uh, at least among people who are delving into these realms. Um, these are fascinating stories, Anna Marie. I mean, and they don't really have a real clean uh, ending, do they? I mean, in terms of this is exactly what's happening and we fully understand this now. We really don't have an explanation. And it's funny mm-hmm. because now that we're doing podcasts, I even ventured to this experiencer. Uh-huh. I said to her, at some point, people are going to ask us about you. Um, and they're probably going to want to talk to you. Uh, mm-hmm. And she was vehemently against it. She felt that the community she was in, she's still living in the same community, mm-hmm. uh, knew mm-hmm. who she was. Did She did not want people coming around, you know, snooping, looking at where she lives. Um, she just finally, she acknowledged, she finally told her three children. Um, and I asked her pointedly, is anyone else experiencing, you know, because these things tend to run in families. Mm-hmm. Is anyone else experiencing what you're experiencing? And she said, well, I do know one grandchild has seen what I have encountered because they were terrified of an aunt on TV. Hmm. Terrified of an, of an aunt as in an insect or an aunt as in a relative? <laughs> yeah, so there's insectoids, there are yes. mm-hmm. the greys. Mm-hmm. I enumerated them at the end of the book. There's mm-hmm. that creature with a lobster claw. And then there's these hooded figures, the chant. These are all part of what she's seen so far. And I say so far because it's continuing. Um, Tom and I felt very helpless at some point uh, because as we got closer to her stories, and Tom has known her several more years than I have, Um, I didn't come into the picture until he asked me to have her in the book. Right. 
when she reached out to me, it didn't even dawn. And a lot of people call me to tell me stories, you know, for either an anthology or a blog or, oh, you know, you have to write my book, yada, yada, yada. Mm-hmm. Um, when she called me, I really had no idea who she was. Mm-hmm. Uh, I said, are you contributing to the blog? Are you, you know, and finally she introduced who she was and told me that Tom sent me. And then I knew who, what she had. Um, mm-hmm. And as things revolved, I could not define. I could not for the life of me define what these things are, what their nature is. I thought I knew, but as things went on, it became stranger and stranger. You know, I think this is one of the things that I love about the collection of books that you have written is that, you know, they may delve into very similar territories, but they're so different than one another. Uh, you, you, there's, there's not a, a cookie, you know, cookie cutter type of pattern to them. Uh, your first one is, uh, you know, spans, you know, decades and is autobiographical. Your second one is uh, The Way Through the Woods is a, you know, is a historical paranormal uh, retelling. Your third one, Haunted Heirlooms, is, uh, you know, a collection of like true stories about antiques and other haunted objects it's just there's such differences to them and it really kind of peels back a lot of different layers to expose some of the alternate things that might be out there you didn't mention my favorite jj oh the fourth one my favorite book is unholy structure yeah, I actually I have not gotten to read that one yet. I've been dying to, and I just have I've been so busy at work. So. <laughs> oh, I won't I won't tell you the spoiler. It'll spoil it. I, I won't tell you. It, it, just sufficient to say that it still sits empty because no one has been able to successfully go in and renovate it. It's, it's I, well, this- I take that back. I have read uh, the first few chapters and the beginning of it where that worker is all by himself in that hotel. That was enough to give me goosebumps. So. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, he quit. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I can see why. <laughs> So why don't you uh, tell everybody how they can find you um, online and et cetera? Well, they can find me on Goodreads. Uh, the latest book is already uploaded on that one. Uh, we are giving giveaways for the next uh, month of night visitants. I am also giving getaway- giveaways. I can't talk anymore. Through my website, which is under my name, AnnaMariaManaloAuthor.com, I can also be found on Facebook, TikTok, of all things. Um, Sometimes I talk on TikTok. It's interesting how that happens. Uh, I am also on Instagram and once in a while, Twitter. But Facebook is probably the What's that? I'm sorry. You have your own podcast too, correct? I had my own podcast, JJ, but it was like 
going slow. And then I had technical difficulties uh, trying to attach them to YouTube, which I thought would make it more productive. But somehow the YouTube link is broken. Um, uh, somehow it's not going on Spotify. I mean, it's got a host of, and I'm not a techie. So, you know, at some point I thought, okay, pick your battles. You know, you've got all these other things. Just go with them for now. Well, if we can help you on that front, we are techies. Uh, I'm a programmer. I'm more than happy to do that because I I really did like your podcast a great deal. The Sinister Archives, first, it's just an awesome name. But the stories that you tell, um, I I, I love those. So, yeah, I would love to see that come back. But I know you're also busy, so (laughs) no pressure. JJ is an expert with uh, the the web material and building these sites. I'm pretty good with recording and figuring out ways of, you know, making things sound good. Um, Dave knows a lot about the websites also. We'd be happy to help any way we can. Oh, thanks so much. I didn't know you were listening, JJ. Oh, of course. I, I've listened to all of the episodes of Sinister Podcast, of Sinister Archives, and we are very good friends on Twitter, on uh, TikTok as well. Uh, I've seen all your videos, and I like them all. So, yeah, it's uh, definitely find her there. Do you know what your handle is on TikTok? Um, oh, my gosh. I think it's Sinister Archives. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, if we people should have definitely any get stories. links to everything together to put in the notes for the show. Okay. Yeah, we definitely will. Um, and that, and I know that on southerndemonology.com under friends of the show, I already have a link to your website there. Uh, but, and we do have a paranormal rundown website that is uh, almost done and in the works. And we'll have links to that there uh, in addition. I have to say, I love the format of this, you guys. This is very unique, but very effective. Just about everybody who's ever run into the rundown really likes the rundown. (laughs) It's a lot of fun to do, and we cover a lot of territory. And and we didn't get to my favorite story from from JJ's podcast that you did, which is the uh, deer walking on their hind feet. I thought for sure we were going to get a UFO topic, and I was going to ask you specifically about them because that was a hilarious story. Wait, wait, wait a minute. I I keep hearing this term recently of not deer, N-O-T-D-E-R, indicating that this is something that kind of looks like a deer but isn't really quite a deer and seems to have other characteristics. Is that what we're talking about here? These would seem to qualify, Anna Marie. You t- tell him if he, if he's wrong, but they seem like they were not quite deer. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's interesting because if you know deer, I mean, they're walking with four legs, you know, they got boobs and everything. And this couple who just uh, happened to be renting this far off farmhouse this is in France, by the way, and it's in a region that is pretty rural. And you don't normally associate UFO sightings in this particular area. I mean, usually there is some in the central portion, simply mm-hmm. because it's a lot more remote. Uh, but this particular area is is really more um, for people who want to vacation, but it does have a lot of tourism and it has a lot of rental homes. 
So mm-hmm. when they went into this particular site, I mean, they've never encountered anything like that. And they're not into the paranormal. But the way they described it to me was it was like the hooves were there, but they were standing on two feet mm-hmm. looking mm-hmm. through the window at them. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you, I am a lifelong deer hunter and I have deer come through my backyard every night um, and eat my garden and other plants. And I've seen a lot of deer, but I have never seen deer stand up on their their back two legs and walk. I've seen them do that to eat leaves off of low-lying branches. I've seen them fight like that. So I've seen them, yeah, and they'll fight like that. But I've never mm-hmm. seen them walk like that. No, that I've never seen them. That would be awesome. <laughs> Yeah, they never went back there. <laughs> I don't blame them for that either. <laughs> and the blue well, light, too. That's right. Well, Anna Maria, we've kept you now for a little over two hours. <laughs> and I can't tell you how deeply grateful I am for the time you've given us. You've given us wonderful stories. And... I sure hope that if we, you know, I think we're going to continue to do the rundown. And if at some point in the future, if you'd like to be a part of another rundown, I'd sure like to have you back. Oh, I would be happy to come back. It's been fun for me. It's been a pleasure. So, gentlemen, do we shut it down? I think so. Yeah, I think this is a perfect ending. Anna Maria, thank you so much. Uh, and as I said previously, if you you know need tech help or sound help or any of that sort of stuff, let us know. Okay. Definitely. All right. Bye bye. We'd like to extend our deepest thanks to you for listening to the Paranormal Rundown, which is a joint production of JJ Vic Hermanson and Dave Griffith. Any media clips featured in the rundown are used under the protection of the Fair Use Doctrine. The music you heard was provided by Lobo Loco and Smart Sound. Until the next time we get together, thank you so much again, and goodbye. Thank you for listening to the Paranormal Rundown. For more information on Anna Maria Manalo, please check out Author. Manalo is spelled M-A-N-A-L-O. There you can find all of her books, her blog, and even subscribe to her newsletter. You can also hear her interview with JJ on the Southern Demonology Podcast, Episodes 60 and 61. These links will be in the show notes. For the Paranormal Rundown, since we have started releasing new episodes, we are now going to move to a monthly schedule. We will shoot for releases around the 15th of each month, so stay tuned. Our next episode will just be Vic, JJ, and I discussing a few deeper topics that we came across and set aside in previous episodes. In the meantime, please feel free to contact us at feedback at paranormalrundown.com. Tell us what you love and perhaps even what you hate about the show and I am sure that Vic would really appreciate topics that you would like to see added to the list. I just know that he is secretly hoping for the Paranormal Rundown 2000. So, we'll see you soon.